Blog Talk Radio. This is Kale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. I've been on a little bit of a hiatus for the past few weeks, but I am back, and I couldn't think of a cooler, better guy to be back with. You know, I've got a great guy on the phone, and we're just going to dive right in here because we've got a lot of stuff to get into. You know, my guest tonight exploded onto the music scene six years ago when one of his songs appeared on the Mega Smash soundtrack of a little movie called Garden State. His debut disc, Who You Are, followed three years later, but the sudden rush of fame and notoriety was a little too much for him to handle, and he was compelled to drop out for a spell and regroup. Mission accomplished. He's back with a, after a self-imposed hiatus with a much-anticipated, just-released sophomore album, Under Control, and he's come by the buzz this evening to tell us all about all of it. You know, I'm a big fan of this guy, and if you're not, get ready to become one. He is charming. He is captivating. He is Kerry Brothers. Hey, man, I don't know about charming and captivating, but I'll take it. (laughs) You are all those things and more, from what I understand, and I have good sources, so... Thank you, sir. (laughs) So how are you doing? Good, good. Just back in Los Angeles. I've been over in Holland for a little bit, trapped under the volcano ash cloud. I finally, finally managed to get a flight home. Is it a whole different world over there? Well, I mean, I I love Holland. I've been... I, I actually just signed a deal with Sony over there to put my put my music out um, in Holland and Belgium and around that those parts. I'm, I, I love it. I, I want to get sick of it. I, <laughs> I, look forward, I look forward to not enjoying strolling down canals every day. You know, I've, I've, heard, I've heard several celebrities, and of course I can't think of one off the top of my head right now, but I've heard several celebrities who spend time, spend a great deal of time over there say, you know, that it's it's so great over there because people aren't affected. People don't, you know, people just let you be who you are. And, and you know, it's one of those places where it's kind of laid back and, and, and live and let live. Oh, yeah. It's like incredibly chill environment. Really wonderful people. Like, I, you know, I, if that becomes a, a sort of second home to me, I would have no problem with that at all. And I remember, yeah, because I remember reading about, like, Quentin Tarantino writing all his scripts in, in Amsterdam. And now, sure. now I get it. It's a good place to escape. So, you know, before we get started here, I just have to tell you that my best friend is a terrific young woman by the name of Sherry Ann, and she, you know, this is episode number 61 of my show, and I have had some damn cool people in here over the course of those 61 episodes, you know, people that she and I both grew up idolizing, and this, by far, is the one that she is most excited about listening to. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of yours, okay, but this woman, and I mean this in the best, most benign way possible, if this woman knew where you lived, she would totally be a stalker. (laughs) She loves you that much, and, you know, I'm going to guess that 
that, given the passion and care that you put into your lyrics and your music, that you get that kind of devotion from a lot of your fans. Is that fair or no? Well, I mean, yeah, it's just, you know, a lot of the stuff I write, I, I kind of pretend when I'm writing that it's not very personal, so it's easier to write, and then it ends up becoming ten times as personal as I imagined it would be. You know, it's like, I guess if you're if you're telling the truth and saying some pretty deep stuff about yourself, or deep, I don't know, at least personal things about yourself that other people can relate to, then they, you know, people definitely latch on. I mean, there's a lot of emotion in what I do. I love, I love writing songs, big, huge emotional arcs to them, so... If that hits people the right way, I'll take it. Absolutely. You know, I, I look at an artist like Tori Amos, who I'm, I happen to admire and respect tremendously. And, you know, by by then of the fact that, that she gets so personal and digs so introspectively deep with her music and her lyrics, her fans in a way seem to endow and, and behold her with, you know, powers that transcend being a mere singer-songwriter. And, you know, when you get oh, that yeah. kind of passion directed towards you, as flattering as it can seemingly be, can it also be a little off-putting sometimes? Can it be disconcerting? It's funny you say that about Tori Amos, because when I was in college, actually, I produced concerts when I was in college, and I produced a Tori Amos show. Oh, wow. And uh, I produced it as like a solo, uh, just her and a piano, and it's like acoustically perfect room. And, you know, and I was, I mean, this is like in, in the 90s, and you know, I was, a, you know, I always really admired her, and I didn't realize, like, how crazy her fans were. You bet. Until that show. Like, I, I thought I, the difficulty of the show was, like, you know, getting her from the airport and getting her into the show, all that. There were, like, voodoo dolls left backstage. <laughs> and and I've never seen anything in my life. Uh, the, the security guy, she had a security guy, and he told me, he's like, just watch this. He's like, there are two shows at night. And he said, after the show's done, right before the encore, someone will come flying out of the audience at her. Because they're fans, and they want to see the show. And they figure if they can touch her, they'll only miss one song. And she walks back out on stage for her encore, and I see this kid come running full speed past security out of the audience with flowers. And this, his, her security guy walks right behind her, puts this guy in a headlock, almost flips him on his back, carries him out the back door, and throws him out the back door. Like, he does it every single night. Like, just the most intense, I mean, intense, intense fans. Luckily, I don't have it. I mean, I luckily, I mean, I guess it's great to have, you know, fans who really care about you, but it doesn't quite get that stalky. You know, it, 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 it's it's really funny when you when you I mean I, I'm sure you saw it because you were there, but when you see her concerts on TV or stuff, you, you always see people in the audience just bawling their like you know like it's a cathartic experience to go to one of her shows. I mean, it's, oh, it's really yeah. incredible the devotion that she inspires. I mean, good for her, man. Absolutely, no question about it. So here's how I always start my show. I always start with kind of you know a general give me a 60 second bio on Carrie Brothers. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where'd you go to school? Let's set the table. Uh, yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee, um, not liking country music at all, and always listening. I mean, just because it was everywhere, man. It was annoying, and I wasn't proud of that when I was a kid. And then, uh, so I was always listening to music from, like, Over the Pond. I was just always with, like, British bands. and Okay. Uh, you know, like The Cure and uh, the Echo and the Bunny Man, stuff like that. And, and meanwhile, you know, there's, there's a solid, solid amount of FM radio, 70s radio rock coming in, so I... I could air guitar Zeppelin's Black Dog by the time I was like four years old, one of my earliest memories. And, and, and uh, you know, I grew up in Nashville and loved part of Nashville and didn't love part of Nashville. The the post-Civil War part of Nashville I didn't really love. Okay. Uh, the people themselves I loved. And I got out of there, went to school in Chicago at Northwestern, and developed a really cool kind of group of friends. It was an interesting time because a lot of the people out of the couple of years around me at school Everybody was really, really dedicated to do what they wanted to in life. A lot of people in the entertainment industry and music and comedy and film. With that kind of inspiration, moved out to L.A. 
started producing films at first, um, and then realized that I love film more than anything, but I hated making them. <laughs> and, and you know, meanwhile, I'd been writing songs since I was 13, and I just shut down my the company I was working at and started playing open mics, which is the worst thing in the world to ever tell your parents. <laughs> your shit, that you, you, you did it, you know, you have your job, and they're so proud, and everything's great. And then uh-huh. you call the next day, and you're like, so I'm going to be working as a, <laughs> as a PA on photo shoots, picking up trash for models while I'm trying to get gigs at free open mics. Is that cool, Mom and Dad? So, and just started over and, you know, found, really found a home in Los Angeles at a place called the Hotel Cafe. It's kind of become my home base in Los Angeles as as a venue. And really found a really good community of people here and and grew up with them, and that's how I got started. That's really how I got found my footing in L.A., at least. You know, uh, there's so many things I want to tackle in what you just said, and uh, I guess the first one is, you know, you, you talked about growing up in Nashville and hating country music, but, you know, looking back, even if only subconsciously, do you do you find that, that some of that music got into your soul anyway? I mean, do you do you yeah, hear... I mean, absolutely. The caveat of that, I mean, it's, you know, that having been said, I love Nashville now more than anywhere in the world. <laughs> you know, it's like you have to leave the place. You know, it's like that thing where you have to leave the place you in bet. order to really love you it. Bet. It's also a, a kind of... Um, there's a small-mindedness there when I was growing up. There, you know, a lot of those people have... To be honest with you, there's a generation that died. <laughs> that, you know, kind of held on to some beliefs, some Southern beliefs that I don't agree with. Sure. And a new generation moved in. And that generation is really changing the town. But, I mean, the, I mean, the sweetest human beings in the world live in Nashville, and I, I, I care about that place so much. You know, with what's going on with the flooding this week, that, that it's hit me really hard. But, yeah, I mean, musically speaking, like, you know, I, you, you, I could not have been influenced by country music because it was everywhere. I think I, what, I, what I really found in Nashville that I wouldn't have found in elsewhere was just a real respect for songwriters. Because it's just, it's a town about songwriters. That definitely got in my brain for sure. So it sounds like you always kind of knew that music was it for you. I mean, it sounds like, you know, somewhere in the back of your head it was always there. Yeah, it was there. It just took me, you know, I mean, it wasn't just in the back of my head. I was recording songs every night. But I just never thought of it as something that you do for a living. Sure. You know, to me it was therapy. It was, I'd come home and you know, I'd never been to a therapist in my life. You know, I mean, I would just come home, pick up a guitar, and that's how my day, that's how I settled my day. You know, and always with a little four-track recording ideas and just hundreds and hundreds of songs, you know, since I was in, like, junior high. I guess that was another thing was this really difficult decision to do something so personal and then just put it out in the world. That is terrifying. You know, it was terrifying at the time. So what what finally gave you the courage? What finally gave you the, the impetus to really pursue this as a as a valid career path? I think I heard a lot of awful music. No. Um, you know, I, I, just, I mean, to some extent, you know, I, I kind of looked around and, and I really, I was like, I think there's a place for the music that I make out there. I was like, I have no idea if I can make a billion dollars, but I know I can, I know I can give it a shot. I just had to do it. Timing-wise, it's interesting because I, I was actually looking at a calendar. I had a little band in Los Angeles that I was playing around and the decision that I, was with for a few months before I decided to do this on my own. And, I, you know, I looked at the calendar. It was weird because I realized I made the decision, like, a few weeks after September 11th. Wow. And I don't know that consciously there was any kind of, oh, no, the world could end. I better go do this. <laughs> but there was definitely a feeling of that in the air at the time. Sure. You know, where it's like, you know, if, okay, if you're going to do something, you better do it now because things are getting a lot creepier and sketchier <laughs> out there in the world. 
And I think also that, you know, where, when I was working at a production company, I was helping writers and directors, like, realize their creative vision every day. And then I would come home at night and write, and I ultimately realized, okay, I need to learn how to do that for myself. I need to learn how to, you know, instead of spending my days helping other people, like, just it's okay to really give this thing a shot. Well, you know, and, and, and it should be noted that, you know, 9-11, 2001, that was around the same time that a spectacular musician by the name of David Gray was busting loose. And, Absolutely. you know, John Mayer and Pete Yorn were coming into their own as serious artists, respected artists. And, you know, all of a sudden the idea of the successful mainstream male troubadour after laying dormant for years and years was alive and well again. I mean, did that help you Absolutely. at all in, in making up your mind? Well, I mean, I think it, it helped make up the industry's mind. When I first started finding success, it was weird for me because I never really listened to singer-songwriters. I mean, I listened to a pretty wide breadth of music, and, I, and, you know, I definitely have Bob Dylan in there, but he wasn't sure. someone who changed my life. You know, I just, I respect Bob Dylan, and I respect what he did for music. But like I said, like, I listened to bands. I was growing up listening to R.E.M. and U2, and Peter Gabriel, but he's not really a singer-songwriter. So I think when I first started playing, the immediate reaction from, like, label people to me was like, oh, you can do the John Mayer thing for us. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. That is not... That has absolutely nothing to do with me. Just because I'm a dude with a name and a and guitar, guitar doesn't mean <laughs> I could be a drum. And they're like, why wouldn't you? you know, and there was this kind of shock from label people when I first started. They were like, why wouldn't you want to be that? Why don't you want to be John Mayer? I'm like, again, like I respect what he does, but I'm Carrie Brothers. So how did, how, did, how did Garden State come into your life? What, what was the, uh, the entree for this? And I've been in L.A., and I've been playing kind of the Hotel Cafe for a few, a couple of years and built, like, a good L.A. thing and was starting to play out of town. And Zach Braff, who, uh, you know, wrote and directed that film, uh, I knew at college. And then when I kind of restarted my life, it was right when he moved to L.A., and we were, we were just broke together, you know. He was waiting tables, and I was playing open mics, and we were, we were just, like, guys with big dreams, basically. Sure. And Zach, back then, was working on this script that he was writing about New Jersey, and since I had done film stuff, I had helped him with the script a little bit. And when he sent the script out to uh, try to get money to make it, he actually came over to my house, through, went through all my CDs and made a mixtape to send out so people could listen to it while they read the script, which I thought was a brilliant idea on his part. You know, he ended up getting financing, the movie got made, and then at the time, like, Blue Eyes was kind of a big song for me in L.A., and he asked me if, if he could put it in the film. By that time, he had done Scrubs and, and all that was going on, but... sure. And he, he kind of invited a bunch of, we were all like music nerds, you know, and he invited a bunch of friends over with stacks of CDs and we'd just throw out ideas. And a lot of the ideas that came in that film, you know, we had gone to see a Remy Zero concert that summer. We had gone to see Colin Hay play. We had gone to see a Coldplay show, you know. There, and the music that we were listening to just ended up on that like a mixtape. Wow. And nobody cared. I mean, nobody cared at all. Everybody was like, oh, it's the funny guy from Scrubs. You know, no one knew how talented he was at the time. Sure. So when the movie came out, I don't even know why they put the soundtrack out. They just put it on shelves. They didn't advertise it or anything, and it just grew. It was a very, like, natural growth to that soundtrack. You know, it went all the way from being, like, the super indie record to, like, a soccer mom record by the time it was done. You bet. And it, that was the coolest thing about it was it was just a very organic growth of that thing. It was something that, you know, you can't replicate. That just I think it happens once. You know, I can imagine that, that it's it's much more satisfying for it to happen that way organically rather than, you know, riding this huge wave of hype and marketing and, you know, all the all the glitz and glamour that's not really real. 
Absolutely. I mean, it taught me a lot about doing this, really. It's one of the reasons I stayed kind of in doing this independently. You know, I've, I've managed to, you know, thankfully with the success of Garden State, that gave me a nice big shot in the arm for my career. But, you know, even since then, I, I kind of like to keep it low profile and let it grow. You know, people who know, know. People who don't, don't. I'm totally fine with that. And, again, as long as I can pay my rent, I get to play music for a living. <laughs> to me, that's a, that's just a privilege. Is it possible to to measure how your life changed in the immediate wake of, of Garden State and, and that soundtrack's arrival on the scene? I mean, it's incredible. You know, I mean, to go from there's a tower, there was, not a tower, there's a Virgin Megastore across the street. Of course, now there are no music yeah. stores in L.A. anymore, which is terrifying. You have the Virgin and Tower, which were blocks from my place, both closed down. But there's a Virgin right across the street from my old place. I remember going in there on, like, a, a Sunday afternoon. I always go in there on Sundays and check out music that had come out that week. And I remember going there Sunday and just seeing the Garden State CD with my name on the back of it. And at that point, I had just put an EP out myself. So, you know, I was I hadn't done much. And I look on them and just seeing my name on that. In Virgin, like, yeah. Art, you know, in, in this store, I was like, okay, this, you know, if it never gets better than this, this is pretty cool. <laughs> you know, and then the next Sunday I come in and they have along the back wall, they have the top 25 records. Uh-huh. And it's number 25. <laughs> and the next Sunday I come in, it's number 10. And the next Sunday I come in, it's number one. And it was just unbelievable. You know, and again, like, you know, there were no, there were no ads or banners or this is kind of, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of as much online hype. And it really kind of, I saw that happen with that soundtrack. It was people telling each other on the Internet. And it, and it grew like gangbusters. And, you know, and suddenly I had options. You know, suddenly... I had people calling me and wanting to work with me or, you know, labels calling and wanting to see how they could get a, you know, they they saw money and they want to get a piece of it. You bet. You know, and I learned a lot really quickly about who to trust and who not to trust. You know, luckily I'd been in Los Angeles long enough, so I had a pretty good idea of who not to trust. <laughs> More than anything, I, it put me on the road and got my name out there and got enough attention to, to be able to get some really great, like, opening slots on bigger tours and Suddenly, I was thrown out into the world, you know, and kind of, kind of unprepared in a way. I don't know if anybody's really prepared for it, but yeah, I was about to ask um, you: were you were you ready for it? I mean, did you have the material? Did you have the songs? Did you have the? I mean, I the had, bravado. I had, did you have the? I had the songs. I don't think I had the bravado. I don't think I had. You know, again, it's like taking someone out of their bedroom where they're writing songs every night. And again, you know, I played out in L.A., but again, you know, I'd also played in at the, the cafe, which had become like a living room to me, so there's a great deal of comfort to performing. And then suddenly, you know, I'm in Louisville on a Tuesday night in front of 150 people or, you know, 100 people, or I'm in Portland, Maine in front of, like, eight people, <laughs> you know, trying to figure out, like, what am I, like, what's yeah. going on? Like, how do I do this? Getting shushed as someone's trying to watch a baseball game, you know, at a bar, like that, you know, and and, and I had, you know, and it was just, I've never been someone who's really had mentors. I've had to kind of learn everything. I've learned by failing, and that's what I did. <laughs> How humbling were experiences like that for you? You know, I didn't know any better. So it's like a 50-50 thing. There's a part of me that's just so excited to be there, to be in a venue city I've never been to before. And then there's part of me that's like, I don't understand why there aren't a thousand people here. <laughs> you know, you want you want to do well. You don't want eight people in the room in Portland, Maine. But luckily, Portland, Maine's been a lot better to me since. (laughs) 
you know, historically for musicians, at least to my eye, the Holy Grail has always kind of been the record deal. And, you know, from what I've read from and about you, I gather that, at least for you, you found that that wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, when I first started with the Garden State stuff, when that really kicked off, there were, you know, like like I was saying, there were major label people who kind of wanted to put me in a box. And I was really, that was really unnerving. I, I wasn't really excited about that and kind of stayed independent, you know, did it independently and put out EPs myself, like literally shipping CDs out of my bedroom and just really learned the business side, which is invaluable for me to understand, like, how it all really works. And then I hit a point where I was just, I just want to write music and play shows. I have other people do all the do all the stuff for me. And so I signed a record deal and soon realized that I didn't like that at all. <laughs> I was way too much of a control freak to just let other people make all the decisions. <laughs> you know, I'm just the kind of person where if there's like a, if there's something wrong with my website, I don't call up the web guy. I'll just go do it myself. It's you bet. Five minutes. You know, it's like I like I'm very very hands like if I need a poster for a show. I can just go on Photoshop and design it myself. You betcha. You know, I just, I don't need to pay people money or or waste time. And I feel like the big label process it's a lot of wasted time. <laughs> and miss you know, and me miss out on opportunities because things take longer. And you know, and then when you start having any disagreements with people, people can rub you the wrong way. And I just realized I just really wanted to do it myself. And then you know, after after all this. You know, putting in, putting all this effort into doing this big deal, all I wanted to do was get out, and then it just took a while to fight my way out of it. And was was that instantly clear to you, or, or did it did it kind of build up over time until you reached a breaking point? It, it built up over a little bit of time. You know, initially when the rest came out, there were like, even even from day one there were decisions that I disagreed with, and I just I've been doing this long enough that like I know how to do it. You know, and if someone makes a decision that I know is going to go wrong. I don't want to be the I told you so. I don't want them to do it in the first place. And I want I want to be in charge of the decision up front so so that isn't screwed up. I want to label it's like this is one more record that can become successful and help their bottom line. For me, this is my life. You bet. I don't take any of this lightly. So I, 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 I gathered pretty quick that <clears throat> there was going to be trouble. I tried to sort it out and just be the nicest guy that I could, and things got worse, and then I realized I, I needed to I needed to bail quickly. And so after you bailed, was it was it uh, you know a big case of of then what? I mean, you know, you had already bailed on one thing to pursue music, and now you're you're bailing on you know the big major label dream to to start over again. And you know, I mean, wh- what goes through your mind when when you're when you're starting over again? What goes through your mind? Honestly, all I cared about was freedom. That's really all I cared about. It wasn't there was no there was no fear at any point in that process. Because like I said, you know, like you're saying, like I mean, I had already I knew how to start over in a way. And I think the best thing that happened was it took a year for me to kind of negotiate my way out of the record deal. And in that year, I, it gave me time. It gave me time off the road after five years on, of nonstop touring. And it gave, me the, it gave me the time I always wanted to have to make a record. It, it, although it seemed really difficult at the time to have to fight my way out of this thing, I realized at the end of the day it gave me the opportunity. So, when, you know, when you least expect it, something that, Things work out for a reason, you bet. and uh, and it gave me it, the whole process gave me this record, and I've never been more proud of anything. You know, talk to me about what that time away did to your creative drive. I mean, I, I know that you were writing songs and you were, you know, you were you were building a record, but you know, you talk about you know not singing in front of crowds anymore. You talk about you know not doing all the things that that 
seemingly from the outside really kind of mark a musician. I mean, talk to me about your creative drive during that hiatus. With me, it was it was it was so about songs. It was about making songs. It wasn't. I didn't I didn't miss performing. Even though you had worked your ass off to create this this outlet for yourself in the first place, I mean, you you really didn't miss it. I didn't. I mean, I I the thing that I need is songwriting. I don't need life. Like I was saying, I don't need adulation. That's not why I'm in this for. Some people need that, and they thrive on it. I, I need to be able to write songs and record them more than anything in the world. And to me, you know, I, and I love performing now. I mean, now more, especially with this record, I finally have, the, like, I have more so than ever, I have material that I want to get up and play every single night. So that's changed. But that's a result of the writing. That's a result of me focusing and my producer on this record, Bill Leffler, you know, I co- did a lot of co-writing with him on it. And it's the first time I've ever done that. And it was just like everything was just exciting again. I felt like I was just, I felt like I was just starting. I feel like this is, when I put this record out, I feel like I just started all over again. And there's just this rebirth kind of thing that feels amazing. So the new record is called Under Control. Indeed. Is it, is it possible to describe it in one sentence? I mean, is it, is it easy to peg? To me, it's just about, I mean, the record is about growing up. It's about me realizing the tough decisions you have to make in life and the stories of when what happens when you make those decisions. Talk to me about your favorite tracks on the on the record. Are, are there any songs that that you know really kind of grab you by the heart? Well, I mean, I don't know. They're all my kids, you know. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, say I know. I know. It's hard to be objective. I didn't say who your favorite kid is. Um, <laughs> this week, uh, I don't know. This week, I guess my favorite right? song is. And all the other kids are going to be really upset about it. But I think Alien is my favorite song on the record this week. Almost because it's it's probably this one of the simplest songs on the record. Okay. And, you know, I, I also I have a problem when I put music out because, because I had done it for so long where I didn't make music for a living. I would write songs, record them, put them on a shelf, and move to the next song. So I have trouble dealing with the fact that this is the thing I have to focus on for the next year. Because I just want to go back and write more songs. And I already am, you know. But I, I'm just—I I need to get on the road quick, because otherwise I'm going to have an entire new set of material that isn't recorded, and people are going to people are going to be like, "What the hell are you playing right now?" I want to hear the songs I know. <laughs> is it—is it hard for you to turn off that switch in your head, that 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 songwriter switch? It, I mean, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. It's always an idea. There's always—I mean—the best piece of technology I've got in the last while was. On the iPhone, they have a four-track recorder in your phone. Wow. And, and that just means I can record. That means I have four tracks. No longer am I humming into even a little portable <laughs> microphone unit. Yeah. I can actually hum the vocal line, hum the bass line, hum the guitar part, and, like, beat on my knees for drums <laughs> and, like, write, write, a, write a really strange-sounding song on, a, on an iPhone. Every time I plug my iPhone in, it's always uploading, you know, three ideas from the last couple of days. Anytime I hear something in my head, I just, now more than ever, I just want to get it down as quickly as possible. But like I said, like if it all fell apart and I ended up, you know, as a carpenter or accountant or something, I would still be writing songs every day. Wow. That's just the way, that's the way my life is. And, and I just feel the, the blessing is the fact that I get to do this for a living. You know, I, I'm a kid of the '80s, and so I, I have to tell you, I love the cover of Level 42, Something About You. You know, that, uh, that was that was a big hit at the time, but you hardly ever hear it anymore. And it's it's such a fun, 
kind of blast from the past to hear it anew after so long, especially in such a stripped-down version. Uh, was th- was this your idea? Was it Bill's idea? Whose whose idea was this? To, it was mine. To... You know, it's funny. It's funny you say that because I just got an email an hour ago from Mark King from Level Forty Two. Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah, because when I was in Holland playing, I kept telling. I mean, I've kind of told everyone that will listen. I was because I, I did. I covered the Thompson Twins. If you're here on the last record and hunted them down and got heard from Alana Curry and <laughs> and those guys, Tom and Alana, and and got and I was like. That was just such a big deal to me. It's like the song isn't official until I get the blessing. Wow. So I, when I was in Holland, I, I talked to some publishing people that knew Mark and knew the guys in the band. And they just gave oh, here's his email. Write him. So I go, oh, God. So I sat there, you know, like, what do I say to this guy whose music I love? I mean, you know, Level 42 when I was a kid. And that song, obviously. You bet. Just such a huge, I mean, it was a smash hit. And I'm just thinking as I'm writing this, I'm my tiny little self on a couch watching MTV when I was a little kid. And if you told that kid that I'd be, like, able to get in touch with this guy. And I ended up, you know, writing him, and he and he wrote me back. I got the email this morning and saying that he, that he loved the track. Fabulous. And, and it was just so cool. I mean, to have that, you know, I don't need validation from much, but that's pretty good. It must feel like a blessing from the Pope in some ways. Absolutely. You know, it's my musical, my musical 80s Pope, Mark King. <laughs> And the sweet, like the sweetest, most self-deprecating guy in the world. So hopefully, I can see him out on the road someday. Do you have a list of songs from your childhood or from your formative years that you would love to kind of put your own stamp on in this way? Well, I mean, now I'm like two for two on these records doing covers. So I have a feeling it's just going to become a part of. It's like I, I'll record those nine other songs for the rest of the world, and I'll record one for me. And also, I feel like weird when a record's done. Like I said, I have trouble listening to the record. But I feel less like an asshole um, when I'm listening to a cover that I did because it's not my song. <laughs> I don't feel, don't feel like an egotistical jerk sitting around listening to his music. Um, I'm like, oh, I didn't write this, so I can listen to it. But yeah, I, you know, I, I, I literally, I have a, there's like a list of like a hundred songs that I'm thinking, you know, also for touring that I'm gonna start to do and sure. just for recording in the future, like. I, I wouldn't be surprised if I ended up putting like a twenty track covers record out at some point. <laughs> because know, I just love I just love the reinterpretation. It's so absolutely. You know, you talk about growing up listening to English bands. I would love to hear you uh, do a take on on Danny Wilson's Mary's Prayer or or Climbing mm-hmm. Fisher's Love Changes Everything. I mean, you know, these, these are some of my uh, favorite English tunes growing up. Oh yeah, I was so bummed the other day because I I was listening to New Order. What track was that? I was listening to some new art track, and I, I just started fiddling around with it, and then realized that. Then I went online to look at the lyrics, and Bon Iver had covered it. And I was like, God, <laughs> and <laughs> you know, we were talking about Garden State. Your music has been featured in a handful of television series and films. I mean, Grey's Anatomy, One Tree Hill. There's, you know, it's a long list. in In this day and age, when the music business in, is in such you know, uncertainty and chaos. How important is that kind of exposure to artists, especially artists like yourself who are independently produced, released, the whole bit? It's everything. I mean, it is everything. When I first started getting attention in that world, burst of the Garden State stuff, and then I got some other things on TV shows, you know, I kind of had this community of friends in the Hotel Cafe, and that place had given me so much, and those people I cared about so much. So instead of, like, 
having a lunch meeting with a music supervisor somewhere, I would bring them to a friend's show at the hotel cafe. <laughs> and I would actively try to get as many of those people in the room as possible. I mean, I mean, it's not completely altruistic because the success of my friends helps me too. We're all in this together. Sure. And a bunch of people there started doing really well with that world. I mean, my friend Josh Radin and a number of other songwriters. And it really changed the game. The first tour I did, I was on tour with a band called Aqualung like amazing British band and friends of mine and I'd done the first half of their tour and we we're supposed to start the second half of the tour in like a week and I was broke and I'd spent all my money on the first part of the tour as an opening act for them and I get a call from Disney and they're like hey I mean speaking of 80s covers they're like we're doing this movie and we need I'm supposed to leave I think I was supposed to leave the tour in like 48 hours or 24 hours and they said we need uh, a cover we're doing all these 80s covers the soundtrack could you do an 80s cover I didn't even ask them what it was I just said how much does it pay and it paid just enough to cover the second half of the tour and I was like great uh, by the way what's the song and they said do my spandau ballet I was like absolutely <laughs> I will do that and called my producer at the time went into his studio at like 8am the next day did that for an entire day took off, he was mixing, I packed my bag, got on the tour bus, and he sent me the mix the next morning. And that paid for my tour. But that kind of thing, I mean, you know, that's that's what the film and TV and commercials do for independent artists. You know, they really give you the opportunity, like practically give you the opportunity to get out there and to, to have the, you know, to be able to tour, to be able to, to be able to live a life that allows you to write more songs instead of having to worry about the bill. You know, it's interesting now, I and mean, I'm sure there's a time will come when these people will realize that they're paying us money to promote our music, um, <laughs> which, um, you know, inevitably some corporate accountant right now is like, wait a second, uh, why are we giving them this money if they help them sell records? But for now it works, and, and, and I think it's going to work for a while because they also know that if they stop paying artists to do that, then the only music they're going to get is a bunch of pap from major labels like the lowest common denominator stuff that, that they have a lot of money to promote. So I, I think uh, it's, it's just, it, 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 it allows opportunity and it, and it really has, has helped so many people that I know. And I think it and hopefully it will continue to. When you think that more people conceivably will hear your music on say an episode of Grey's Anatomy than will ever see you live. Does that, does that bother you at all? Does it? Not at all. It's just, the, I, I think, oh, wait, I got paid money for 20 million people <laughs> to hear one of my songs. As opposed to, you know, especially because opposed to modern, modern radio is such a tough thing because you end up having to pay all these people money to promote your music. Uh-huh. Like, to get it to stations and to, and then to finagle the station people and to tell them what's happening and, um, in order to get them to play me. Like, it's, it's like, I, if, if every station that likes my, songs played it i'd be played on a lot more stations it has it, the, the, like the politics of getting on radio is so like i get emails from dj saying i love your song so much but i'm not allowed to play it because there's a list of these other label artists that are higher up on you and level of importance when i first got into the game and this whole thing you know that that was disheartening that there's more opportunity out there that i can't get but it just makes me want to fight for it harder and i i, I like being the underdog yeah, I like fighting my way up. It's, it's more it's more fun that way. And how about the Internet and things like iTunes? I mean, how crucial are, are these new digital outlets in, in getting your music and the music of so many artists in your situation out there? 
Well, they're everything. I mean, you know, you, you take the good with the bad. The, the good is that, you know, when I first started doing this years and years ago, you know, I, there was something called, my guitarist was like, there's this thing called MySpace. <laughs> and, and, and it was really when MySpace first, they just started doing music pages, like that month. And I would go, I would stay up every night long. Of course, now they have, like, computer programs that do this for you. I would stay up every single night. I would come home, I'd go out with friends, come home at, like, 1 o'clock in the morning and stay up till like, 6 a.m. searching for fans that had similar interests, you know, just blindly going out and hunting people and sending messages one by one. Say, if you like this, you might like me. You know, just personal messages. Like, it was crazy, like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails. But that's why when things started going well, I had a good base of fans on the Internet because I did the legwork. And then it just grew and grew and grew. And, and you know, I'd say 50% of the people that heard my music heard it from, you know, Garden State initially, and then 50% just found it on the Internet. It's an amazing opportunity for, for people to get their stuff out there. The fact that you can write a song and send it to someone and it's on iTunes globally a week later, it's insane to think about. And it never, you know, it can never, it never leaves your computer. So that, I mean, that's that's great. The flip side is the fact that, you know, I also know that I can't expect sales of a record to be what they even were for me six years ago, sure. because I just assume that at least fifty percent of the people are going to steal it, if not more. And kind of the numbers kind of back that up. I'm of the mindset creatively that when you put something out there in the world as a musician, it's not yours anymore. It's someone else's to you know, to adapt to their own life and whatever. And I, and I ultimately had to realize that I have to feel the same way about it as an actual product. Like when I put a song out in the world, it's not mine anymore. And I would love, love someone to buy it. But hopefully if they're going to steal it, then if they like it, they're going to come see shows. They're going to, you know, buy a CD at a show. They're going to Twitter about it, you know, and do something to help this thing move forward. So that's the dream idea is that. At the same time, you know, if, if someone stole CDs off a merch table to show, I'd beat the crap out of them. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's not digital, so. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know, going down that same path, all these new outlets, you know, iTunes and MySpace and, you know, all these all these kind of instant, you know, outlets for music, do do they make it harder for the good work to stand out? Because they level the playing field so, so dramatically, I mean, does it, does it make Absolutely. it harder for the good stuff to stand out? Anybody can make a record. Any, I mean, you can make a record with better technology on a, that comes with a MacBook right now than the Beatles had, you know, in terms of just, like, tracks and options. and So anybody can make, literally anybody can make a record now and get it up on iTunes, get it out in the world. And so there is more stuff. So ultimately it just means that you're going to sell less records to a more committed audience of people. And so I think I think the end game for me is that I just, it's made me realize having made this record and now feeling very, getting really excited about writing more, I just want to put out more stuff. Because instead of selling, you know, selling tons and like million records to a million people, um, like one record, you know, sell, just hit the same group of people over and over again who care about your music and put out Ten times as much music, and in doing so, we have a lot more music out there for for some new fans to learn about and hopefully like. I think that's the way to go now. It's just it's about output. It's just about more and more and more and more music. The days of like putting out a record every three years, and that have been said. It took me three years to put this record out, but um, 
but I was also I, I was also couldn't put it out because of the label stuff. So, uh-huh. You know, it takes. I think I think it's about just putting out more and more and more music, and and really hitting finding out who likes you and hitting that audience every time. So whose music do you like out there right now? Whose stuff reaches out and grabs you by the heart? I've been kind of going back into the vault. I've been listening to a lot of like Elvis Costello and further back. My friend, my friend Greg Laswell actually just put a record out today called Take a Bow. That's awesome. Not, and not just because I sing on a lot of it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I went in the studio and literally like I, I know we're such good friends that he's not even sure where his vocals start and my, I mean where mine start and his end and because I, w- I went in one a day when he wasn't there and started singing harmonies on a bunch of things and sang them as him. And I think he's just like, I don't even know what's he would like me. So I'm sure I'm miscredited all over the place. <laughs> but I guess these days, like the new Aqualung record is just gorgeous. I've been really enjoying that. You know, I got on the, the whole bearded forest bandwagon for a while with Bon Iver and that world. And I still like, love that Bon Iver record. I think that's a beautiful record. But other than that, I've just kind of been going into the vault. I think what happened in the last few months is that I uh, I moved uh, into a new apartment and I ripped all my CD, my whole CD collection. And I rediscovered everything that I had <laughs> that I hadn't even listened, I hadn't listened to in years. And so I don't like new music. And just honestly, like the new, a lot of new music just isn't really doing it for me. Yeah. So I've just been, I've been going deeper and deeper into the past and, you know, Finding, like kind of rediscovering my influences in a really cool way. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little, and, and you can absolutely no, no. turn this down if you like, but you know, I asked Sherry Ann if there was anything she wanted to know from you or about you, and the, the only thing, the one thing she said was, make him sing Ride and dedicate it to me. So <laughs> if, if, you would be, if you'd be kind enough to, to let it rip with eight bars or so of Ride for your biggest fan in the world, she and I would both be profoundly grateful. <laughs> All right, she's getting, she's getting her, she's getting it. <laughs> All right. You are everything I want you my hand Let's see a bridged version. <laughs> <laughs> that was very, very cool. She's, I'm telling you, she's going to love you even more now. She's going to, she really is going to be a stalker. So, so be forewarned. It's also that's the first, that's the first time I've ever played. I just got a new guitar yesterday, and I was just like, that sounds pretty good. Fantastic. It's working all right. So what's on the horizon for Carrie Brothers? I assume you're going to tour behind this record. Yeah, yeah. Uh, touring is going to start. I'm going back over to Holland to tour at the end of May, last week's May, and then come back to the States and probably do a lot of, um, I think, like one-off shows kind of in, in June, and then not officially announced yet, but I think it's, the dates aren't all announced, but I'm going to do a, a national tour in July into August a little bit. I'll do half of it in July, August, and then I think go back to Europe and then do the other half of the U.S. tour uh, later in the fall. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to literally try to hit every city in the United States. <laughs> 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 well, 
Well, I tell you what, if you ever make it through Austin, Texas, I hope you look me up. Absolutely, man. Well, I tell you what, this has been such a great thrill for me. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed talking to you and speaking with you, and I would just wish you the best of luck with this and all your future endeavors. I think you're absolutely terrific, and this has been a great thrill for me. I thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me, man. You know, before I let you go, could I get you to do a promo for my show? Oh, sure thing. As long as it includes the words Carrie Brothers and Brandon's Buzz, anything else you say is completely up to you. And we're recording now, so whenever you're ready, shoot. Hi, this is Carrie Brothers, and you're listening to the Brandon's Buzz. Fantastic. Thank you so, 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 so much. No problem, man. The phenomenal Kerry Brothers, everybody, on Brandon's Buzz. Brandon's Buzz in the can. If you're listening, you already know how to find the show, but in case you don't, let me just give you a quick rundown. Three places, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. That is kind of home base, mission control for Brandon's Buzz. From there, you can listen to the show. You can download old episodes of the show. You can leave comments. You can send emails. It really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page at brandonsbuzz.com is a blue button marked radio. You click that. It takes you to a full archive of all 61 episodes. This is episode number 61. This one and all previous 60 are available in the radio archive at the top of any page at brandonsbuzz.com. Just click on the blue button marked radio. I'm also on iTunes. I'm on iTunes right next to Carrie Brothers. Just type in Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on my logo. From there, you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the Music Store. Or you can download individual old episodes of the show as podcasts. And they're all up there, all 61 of them. So I'm on iTunes, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on, uh, I'm all over the place. Google the words Brandon's Buzz and something will pop up that points you in my direction. And I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me. And I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi everybody out there, this is Eileen Kristen and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word. Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy, great show. Check hey it out. Hey guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So if you feel that you just can't take it. And your world isn't what it seems. Don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt.